Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to our present state versus history on speaker. Here we are focused on the current events of our culture through the principles of our history, trying to make sense of the culture and the mindset of today. I am your host, Ray Mayfield. Okay, folks, here we are back on the pod. Um, we've been doing this little series on uh, principles of freedom. Uh, I'm not sure the last podcast we did on the natural law that uh, Cicero was based on. That I need to make sure I give credit where credit's due on um, a lot of these uh, information gathering, I guess. Um, none of this information is my own unique uh, invention of my mind, I guess you could say. Um, it is the comp- compiling of uh, years of studying and uh, researching these matters, but uh, a lot of my source information is uh, a variety of places. But if you're serious about wanting to get into an actual um, study of constitutional uh, format and framework. And one of the best resources that I've found is from the National Center of Constitutional Studies. Um, they have a website, www.nccs.net. They've got uh, some courses that you can buy or just take. Uh, one of them that uh, we purchased years ago is uh, called The Making of America, and uh, it's a fabulous college course outline that they've put together with uh, CDs of lectures, and uh, and I'll warn you, it's quite intense. It's several hours of studying. Um, they have, uh, this is where the book that I'm all the time telling people in this country that I believe should be mandatory reading in the high schools, it's called The 5,000-Year Leap. And a lot of these principles through that book, they have uh, uh, 28 principles that they've listed. I'm not uh, going down through. I mean, these principles are all the same. They're universal. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm not going down their 28-point list. We probably won't have 28 uh, uh, points. But the points that are made in that 28-point list are the same points, if that makes sense. Um this uh, study through these folks is what really, um, back in the early 2000s, 99, somewhere in there, uh, got me interested in realizing that um, I didn't know anything about our Constitution and the forefathers and the way this country was uh, put together in reality. I had an idea of some of the 
half-truths and, and misinformed information that the school put out that was just uh, the basic generic surface, uh, memorize a few dates and, you know, a few things like, you know, George Washington went across the Delaware, which, you know, made absolutely no relevant uh, impact on my life whatsoever. So um, through that revelation, I guess uh, you could say, it drove me to realize that I needed to educate myself. And that's what began this quest of digging and studying. Um, I've got uh, many biographies by uh, um, Walter, uh, I don't know if I say his name right, Isaacson, I believe. Um, he's written some um, biographies or bios on our forefathers that are fabulous, I think. Um, Allison uh, Sconson, I believe is how you pronounce his name, Maxfield. Um, this Gordon S. Woods, who the uh, uh, National Center for Constitution quotes a lot of his writings. I've got um, a couple of his different books. One of them that I think is uh, an absolute must-read is Friends Divided, talking about uh, the contrast differences between uh, the opinions of two of our fathers, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and how those two men were actually pretty good friends, but there was a period of time there where they, they had quite a distinction between the two of them over their political viewpoints. Um, later in life, praise God, they you know were kind of um, reconciled a lot of that before they both died. Um, but uh, it's fabulous to understand the um, staunch differences of opinion, but yet the ability to respect one another, which is something that uh, I believe is foreign in our society today because of a lot of these things we're talking about um, that are just the conclusions of, you know, a simple mind like myself that's drawn from um, digging into all this research and in the historical accounts. And what I hold... Uh, dear I guess about most of these uh, documents that I've read is they're not full of opinion um, one of the things I like about this uh, Gar Gordon S. Woods and the way he writes is uh, he's just taken the historical events and the and the way that they unfolded putting them in kind of a story form so that it explains you know without a lot of added commentary of course he's put uh, you know his two cents in and there here and there to make it flow together but for the most part it's just uh, what I call raw information, and that's what I like. The Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, they're both out there where you can read. That's kind of hard reading, but um, it enlightens your idea, ideas and your mind as to what the arguments were that the forefathers had about a great big federal government and the, and the needs for federal governments and the places, the, the proper perspective, you know, for the arguments about a federal government as well. And we're seeing these things. It's amazing. As you read these things, you see them unfolding in our current day newspapers. And this is the whole point of this podcast is I'm trying to bring a relevance to the things that we have considered to be irrelevant to our daily life today. And it is exactly the same issues that they were dealing with back then. Because the thing that we fail to grasp, I know I did, is the concept or understanding of the human nature that these men had a very good understanding of and uh, that never changes no matter what the date on the calendar is um, some other books is a patriot's guide is is piled up of i can't remember the author's names on that book off the top of my head but it's 
compiled of uh, papers, of writings of the forefathers and quotes that they'd made and letters they'd wrote, speeches they'd gave. And uh, We the People is another uh, fabulous uh, gathering together of that information. All of this information is public record, um, but these folks that um, I've just mentioned have done a fabulous job of compiling it all together and putting it in a in a single source, if you will, to make it easier to uh, dig it up, dig it, dig um, into it. And you know, I what I think what I learned the most about in my studying was reading the biographies of these men and seeing a little bit about their personal lives and how they got to the place where they were um, creating our uh, documents of liberty. And not only that, but seeing the different roads that they walked and, and the, um, should I say, the backgrounds that molded them into the men that they were. And then we also, through reading those things, get to see the tremendous price that those men paid. And I don't think we put enough emphasis a lot of times on the cost of bringing this country into existence upon the personal resources and recaps of those individuals and their greatest fears of what it was if this failed because they knew if they put this constitution and this country in motion and they went through the grievous process of bloodshed and and the ripping away from the king that they were going to be a target, if you will, from all nations of all sides, and that the path after the revolution from that moment forward was going to be hypercritical as to the success and failure of the nation, more so than winning the Revolutionary War. And these, these men understood that, and the greatest fear that they had when they were putting these things together almost three years before the Constitution was created and ratified and, and set in motion, um, the debates all around the table were whether or not the society that they were living in around the colonies was going to have the capacity within itself to self-govern. See, the, the lack of self-restraint was the greatest fear they had as being the poison, if you will, that would prevent this nation from becoming what they knew it could be because they had seen the decay. It wasn't something that they were just standing up on the, on the uh, street corners and looking around, you know, being the judge of the society saying, oh, my God, these people are so unworthy. No, it wasn't anything like that. They were looking at the characteristics of uh, Britain, of the king, of, uh, of all of the uh, wealthy nations and, the, and, and what brought those demises into. And they were seeing those same characteristics develop in the colonies that were the most prosperous and where there was more prosperity of finance than we were seeing. They were seeing the behavior mirroring what was coming from um, the king. And they were afraid that we were just going to repeat those same things and that that was the, the um, debauchery, I guess, was some of the terminology they used, that was going to bring um, failure, if you will, to 
the break and it was going to allow that corruption in prematurely to the point to where uh, we could no longer operate it with uh, the ability to self-govern and but before before i get too far into that you know we we just did the the last one on cicero's uh, natural law and how blackstone and and these men um, believe that all law was based upon uh, that natural law, um, used uh, the uh, thou shall not kill as an example. But, you know, and then this week my wife, she reads a, a article to me where this is what's going on in our current history. That's why I say I try to relate this stuff to. We've got legislators right now in Washington, D.C. that are passing bills. They passed a bill that said it was wrong or illegal to discriminate against black hairstyles. Now, what the heck is a black hairstyle in the first place? Um, what's a white hairstyle? I mean, really? And are we really wasting time? Is this really what we've come to? This is exactly what the forefathers was talking about would start to happen if we did not base everything on the supreme law. We already have a law in the books that says... Um, thou shall not discriminate against race, color, or creed, right? So I'm thinking that hairstyle thing probably falls under that. It's like here a while back in the state of Missouri, we had the big up-to-do, and we had to pass a law and put it on the books for the driving, that, you know, distracted driving with a cell phone. You know, that's illegal, and we can write you a ticket now for distracted driving. It's nonsense. We've had a law on the books for as long as I've had a driver's license that says careless and imprudent driving. Therefore, anything that is declared by the peace officer that is careless and imprudent driving is what we call a CNI ticket. That CNI ticket holds as much weight as a DWI because it's careless and imprudent driving. If you're talking on the phone, if you're eating Doritos, if you're playing tiddlywinks underneath the seat while you're driving, all those things fall under careless and imprudent driving. Just like this black hairstyle, whatever that is. I mean, come on, really? Have we come to a place where we can't even rationalize right reason, which is exactly what Cicero was talking about? And I have to say, yep, when we got stuff like that, we got our legislators that are supposed to be taking care of the supreme laws of the land, taking care of our national security, taking care of our national trade. I mean, I can go on and on with that. Those are pretty important things. But yet we're occupied with worrying about whether somebody's making fun of somebody else's hair. Are you kidding me? This is exactly what Benjamin Franklin was concerned about, dealing with what they called public virtue. You see, Benjamin Franklin said that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. He said, as a nation becomes corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Our society today is so vicious and corrupt that we need multiple masters. See, this is the point. We know we shouldn't be driving down the road looking in the back seat or looking at our phones or looking out the side window or looking somewhere other than where we are going. It is not rocket science. So do we have to pass a law that says I can write a ticket because you were looking crossways instead of straightways? See, we need more masters. The fact of the matter is, 
if we have public virtue, is what the founders called it, then we have right conduct. And right conduct is what Cicero called the golden rule or the following of the natural laws. Natural laws that we walk and operate in every day. If we're a walking in public virtue, then we will automatically file or walk in those natural laws. In the 18th century, uh, the view was a, a special character is what they considered it. They considered this public virtue a special character in individuals. Um, it says what they described it as was a willingness of the individual to sacrifice his private interest for the good of the community or the commonwealth. Such patriotism is what they called that, or love of country is public virtue. Now that comes from um, a quote from Gordon Woods in, in uh, a book he wrote called The Creation of American Republic. So it was the attitude or the um, mindset of the founders or of most people, in fact, in the 18th century, that if we had what we called public virtue, then we were willing to sacrifice our self-interest for the public good or for the good of the commonwealth, and that was a love of country or patriotism. That's not the way we describe all those things today. It's the way we should be, but it's not how most people describe them. Because, you see, we don't find too many people in our society today that are willing to self-sacrifice for the good of the whole. But, you see, when we get back into the Word of God, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew, where he says that uh, he's asked, first of all, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And uh, he says to love the Lord thy God with all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy heart. And then he says, and the second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the love he's talking about, that self-sacrifice. You see, Jesus Christ is the example that we as Christians are supposed to be following. And Cicero's point was, it's not just the Christians who can see this. It's the natural law of God. And most people recognize this as being the absolute truth that we need to govern our lives by. And Jesus' example was the cross of Calvary where he suffered tremendously for the good of all humanity. That suffering is the love of God. Now, most Christians, they don't see that in most of the world. They think love is some secondhand emotion like the songwriters sang. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't sacrifice for something, you really don't love it. If you don't sacrifice for your family, you really don't love them. If you don't sacrifice for your children, you really don't love them. If you don't sacrifice for this nation, you really don't love it. You're really not a patriot if you're not willing, see. This was the attitude that they needed to see displayed in the society around them at the time of the revelation. Revolution, I'm sorry. It was a brutality of the Britain that pushed the Americans in the edge of the ability to self-govern because they saw that behavior and when they saw that behavior in them, they created the, the, that same brutality, that same pushing, that same um, 
pressure that continued on is what the citizens of the colonies realized had to be rooted out of their own society. But you see, we didn't learn anything from that because when you fast forward to World War One, at the end of World War One, if you recall, we had the the Treaty of Versailles that came on, and well, well, that Treaty of Versailles was a brutality or a strenuous restriction against uh, Germany and all of those countries that lost the war, and 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 we were turning the screws on. We weren't going to let it up. We were we were going to make it happen. Bless God. We were going to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and putting the pressure on. And because of that treaty, and because of the unwillingness of the of the uh, United Nations that were pushing uh, for the screws to be turned, guess what come out of all that? A man named Adolf Hitler. And that because of the treaty and the pressures that were being pushed on, that allowed the perfect storm for Adolf Hitler to rise up and become powerful. And then guess what we had? World War II. And now we've got Putin over there putting the pressure on. And what are we doing? We're putting the pressure on. We're pushing the pressure on. Pushing. We haven't learned anything. And now he's just keep resisting and resisting. And uh, if we don't back off, this thing's going to blow up in our face. That's what happened to the king. The king kept putting the pressure on the colonies. And the colonies were realizing that uh, they were l- giving in to the lavish type lifestyle. And they were seeing that mirrored thing. And then Thomas Paine, if you, if you read his uh, common sense uh, Uh, commentaries that began to be published this was three years before the revolution by the way he began to to write those uh, commentaries that they've compiled into a book called common sense into the newspapers and the people were were reading and back then the newspapers and the media wasn't as corrupt as it is now and they have unbiased and they printed those kinds of things and he began to talk about the common results of these things in the society and the and they began to see the society as a whole started to change its attitude from a selfish self-centeredness to a attitude of sacrifice for the good of the nation. Because luxury, indulgence, amusement, and pleasure were the only things that were interested by the kingdom in britain and when they saw those things being characteristics in the americas they realized that they needed to shift from that self-centered attitude to an attitude of what the folks called public virtue and because they did the nation became the america that we are today And almost every man in the country had the ability at that point to own property. I'm not saying they were all property owners, but they had the ability to own property. And that's what made them what they called freeholders. And that was the difference in the mindset and the attitude of the people before the revolution began. And they began to have a reform of consciousness. A great reform blew, started growing into um, the colonies. 
and John Jay and Robert Morrison and Robert Livingston, um, they began to see these people exhibiting the potential and the capacity for public virtue, and they began to realize that they were probably going to be able to self-govern, and that if we were going to get a government and operate in self-government, that now is the time because the people's attitudes for the self-sacrifice were at its highest point, and they knew that that's what it was going to take. James Madison said that there was a spirit of liberty and patriotism amazing in all degree and in all denominations of men. And he was ready to see things get pushed forward into what they needed to be for the operations of a long-term self-sufficient government. And Thomas Jefferson, he... Uh, he believed in what was called a, a natural aristocrat, those that were born leaders. There was a natural um, leadership, and then there was the unnatural leadership. And he's talking about uh, those that were brought into those positions of power because in the, in, uh, the king's kingdom, that was an unnatural aristocrat. They were brought in there by birthright. They were brought in there by name. They were brought in there by all kinds of attributes other than their abilities to do right, see? And what Thomas Jefferson said was that uh, there needed to be a natural leaders, not, not those described to serve, he, or desiring to serve, rather, but those that were naturally capable of doing the right thing because that's what was necessary see and all of these other kingdoms they just had people because of their social class or their social status to to uh, um, be in these positions so they the the founding fathers in order to kind of draft some of that honor into the public office they used uh, uh, quotes from cicero we go back to cicero and he says, there, there is really no other occupation in which human virtue approaches more closely to the august function of the gods than that of founding new states or preserving those already in existence. See, that was a, a quote of uh, Cicero that uh, Thomas Jefferson and, and John Adams and some of them, they began to push into the public views to get people to read and, and get them to understand and that there was honor in public service and that there was patriotism, you know, and, and integrity to be uh, these leaders. And, and John Adams and, and Samuel Adams both were uh, great sacrifice. They sacrificed a lot to be in the public office. They both sacrificed their fortunes. They both sacrificed, you know, a lot of the, the, the easy avenues of their life, you might say, in order to be in public service, you know. And uh, John Adams, you know, he, he never was very popular. He, he never was somebody that, uh, that uh, everybody, you know, really loved. But he actually ended up being the president of the United States, see, after a period of time. And uh, his attitude was that he would rather make a fortune for the country rather than make his own personal fortune. See, that attitude of, of self-sacrifice. And that's what paid off in the end because he knew that uh, he needed to suffer or he needed to set things in motion simply because they were the right thing to do. See, 
how many people do you know and how many of you all out there have done the right thing simply because it was the right thing to do and suffered for it? See, this is that natural aristocrat quality that the forefathers were talking about because you know that it's going to probably do financial harm or you're not going to gain the absolute best uh, situation with whatever it is, but you know that it's the right thing to do, and so you're going to do it simply because that's the right thing to do. Benjamin Franklin, he, uh, <clears throat> he was uh, very staunch about this uh, payment thing for, for uh, um, public offices and, and attaching the finances to those things because he was over in Europe all the time and he was seeing this, this corruption and how it, it came to pass. And when they were, when they were discussing all of this, I'm going to read some of the quotes from Benjamin Franklin's speech that he gave um, to uh, during the, uh, the process of uh, determining money and, and, and putting uh, uh, financial price tags on these positions. Um, part of the speech, he says, Sir, there are two passions which have a powerful influence in the affairs of men. These are ambition and avarice, the love of power and the love of money. Separately, each of these has a great force in prompting men to action. But when united in view of the same object, they have in many minds the most violent effects. Place before the eyes of such men a post of honor that shall at the same time be a place of profit, and they shall move heaven and earth to obtain it. The vast number of such places it, it is that renders the British government so temptuous. The struggles for them are the true source of all those f fashions which are perpetually dividing the nation, distracting its councils, and hurrying them in sometimes to fruitless and mischievous wars, and often compelling the submission to dishonorable terms of peace. So what he's saying there is that you make our positions posts of honor and profit both, and you will have the most corrupt people making the most um, absurd decisions abruptly with the falsest of consequences to them that we will never be able to um, with, with resist the corruption that will come into um, the government. He says, he goes on to say, And what kind are the men that will strive for this profitable premises, though all the, the bustle of, of capital, the heat of contention, the infinite mutual abuse of parties, tearing to pieces the best of characters? It will not be the wise and moderate, the lovers of peace and good order, the men fittest for the trust, it will be the bold and the violent, the men of strong possession and indefigable in, in def, in character, or activity rather, in their selfish pursuits. These will thrust themselves into your government and be your rulers, and these too will be mistaken in the explicit happiness of their situation for their vanquished competition competitors of the same spirit 
and from the same motives will perpetually be endeavoring to distress the administration towards the measure and render them oblivious, rather, to the people. So what he's saying is you're going to get the same breed of people competing for the same job with their self-motive activities, and they're not going to be doing anything for the benefit of the people. He was afraid that this was going to turn everything into a, basically a monarchy system, and the, the setting of these things up, we would have only the thieves and the contemptible running for these offices. Here's a place where he's talking about the, the uh, um, things turning into a monarchy. He says, there is scarce a kingdom or a king in a hundred who would not, if he could, follow the example of Pharaoh. Get first all the people's money, then all their land, then make them their children's servants forever. It will be said that we do not propose to establish kings. I know it. But there is a natural inclination in mankind to kindly govern. It sometimes relieves them from aristotic dominion. They had rather have one tyrant than 500. It gives more of an appearance of equality among the citizens. And that they like, I am apprehensive thereof, perhaps too apprehensive, that the government of these states may in future times end up in monarchy. But this cat 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 catastrophe, I think, may be long delayed if in our posed, proposed system we do not sh sow the seeds of contention, fashion, and turmoil in making our post of honor places of profit. We, if we do, I fear that although we employ at first a number of single, not a single person, the number will in time be set aside. It will only nourish the fetus of a king as the honorable gentleman of Virginia very apparently expressed and the king will the sooner be set over us. So what he's saying is if we continue down this road, the, the, the gradual natural progression of men through this corruption is going to be men who are set out for their own personal gain, which is exactly what we have in Washington, D.C. right now. We've got people, I mean, for Pete's sake, we just had Mr. Putin over there in Russia put sanctions against individuals who are in our federal government because they individually have serious amounts of money that they have made that is obviously within his control of his country that he can get a hold of. And these people have not produced a single thing. What is wrong with that? That is exactly what Benjamin Franklin was warning us about. He says we will have this, this uh, anarchy coming in and ruling the people just like Pharaoh, and that's exactly what we have. We have a gross overreach of a federal government that is out of control. We have people that are, that are in government for their own personal gain. George Washington himself refused his wages for both, both being president and being commander-in-the-chief. Because he knew that it was more important for the nation to 
um, prosper. Now people say, well, yeah, well, he was a big rich guy. He didn't need the money. No, his plantation and his farm and ranch and stuff from the Revolutionary War was all but destroyed. I mean, yeah, he had the land, but he had to rebuild the entire thing, and he could have used that money, believe you me. But he refused to take it, and he went on to uh, be the, you know, the commander-in-chief and the leader because he, he exhibited those characteristics of which these men were talking about, and this ability to operate within the confinements of what is right for the nation, public virtue. See, and this is where I've been all these years, I've been barking these things about the Constitution, about the United States and our mindset as a nation and from the Word of God and bringing these things all back to relevancy because it is about all of these things that um, the Word of God tells us that we should be um, operating in. If you go and read Proverbs 24, uh, 23 through 25, it's talking about that virtue. It says that... Uh, the things belong to the wise. It is good to not to have a respecter of, of persons in judgment. He says that the wicked, he said, he, he that saith unto the wicked, thou art righteous, shall the people curse. The nation shall abhor him. But him that rebukes him shall be a delight, and the good blessings shall come upon him. See, that's talking about our mindsets and our, our uh, um being, uh, what do you call it, uh, respecter of persons, see? We do the right thing. We have good judgment because it's the right thing to do. We operate in what's good. And, and the very thing that Thomas Paine um, initiated in his letters to the newspaper that got the spirit of patriotism that Thomas Jefferson was speaking of in the people started to rise up, that is the very thing that made our revolutionary war and our declaration and our constitution a successful thing because the people themselves began to rise up and live a life that was looking out for the nation and and move for what's good of the whole and that's exactly what we need to take place in this country again today we don't need to take up arms and storm the capital or whatever else we need to wake up and start living a life that is not self-centered self-directed and self-motivated because what these forefathers also told us was we were not supposed to be trusting or counting on those that were sent to office to do the right thing we were supposed to count on those who were doing the sending because when the people are virtuous and they pick virtuous people, then they will also hold them responsible and accountable once they get to office because we the people are in control. We the people are the government. We the people are the rulers of this land. But we the people have allowed the few, the aristocrats, the spoiled, the 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 what what um benjamin franklin called them he called them the uh, the thieves and the scoundrels to rule over us and we have allowed them to take ground that we got to take it back we got to send legislators back up there we got to set this constitution back in the places where it was before the 1900 generation we got to appeal some of these appeals that have been put onto our constitution we got to set things back in order the way they were intended to be and we've got to start walking in virtue and honor and be willing to sacrifice our own fortune and our own fame and our own positions of 
of whatever in order for the sake of the nation for the generation who's coming along. And I see I've went long and I could go on and on about this being the virtuous people, but uh, we're going to continue with these principles. I've been, I've, I've reached out to uh, some folks that I met back in uh, oh, a few years back, several years back that uh, are uh, constitutionalists and teachers, and I'm hoping to get a few of them on some uh, phone interviews in here. And uh, so you're not just listening to me, but we're going to continue rolling down this little list here um, until we get done, however long it takes. So I hope you got something out of this. I hope you, you're listening, and I hope I've spurred you to study and, and dig it up because, you know, the Bible tells us that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman worthy of our hire, and that's my intent here. I'm not trying to... Uh, um, feed you with all the information you need. I'm trying to wet your your taste buds to get you hungry enough to dig on your own and do your own research and uh, read some of these uh, historical accounts and these things of these men. So once again, I appreciate y'all listening to these podcasts. Hope you're getting something out of it. Let us know um, through the email and the contact number comment box and until we meet again on the pod have a wonderful day lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.